Hi, everyone. This is Kyle from The Career Guide. And before we start our podcast today, I just wanted to say thanks for listening and subscribing. And I also wanted to make sure that you knew that we have a free community for graduates, young professionals, or really anyone that's interested in finding, starting, and managing their international career. So go ahead and check the link in the show notes, and you can join us inside the community where there's 130-plus members already striving to achieve their international career. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you inside the community. And now on to our podcast. So I was there when the tsunami hit in Sri Lanka, and I ended up uh, then uh, staying and uh, was uh, one of the first people on to sort of the east side of the island where some of the, you know, obviously the, the most devastation was. Um, and so, and then, and then started to actually report that back for a newspaper in the United States, actually back for a newspaper in my hometown of Spokane, Washington, who I had, you know, cold called and said, hey, I am here right now. And they said, well, send us what you got and take pictures, you know, and so that's kind of where where I was when um, that happened. And that was both sort of, you know, an eye-opening experience as a journalist and now working more in the humanitarian field. Hey, everybody. This is the Career Guide Podcast, brought to you by Capacity Building International and your host, Kyle King. If you've dreamed of working abroad and having an international career, this podcast is for you. Every episode is an interview with someone from the international community. We hear their stories, how they got started, and about their life and experiences while working abroad. Each episode will provide you with personal insights, tips, and strategies to help you launch your international career. We hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our career newsletter so you don't miss out on your future and opportunities. So today we're joined by Casey Johnson, who is a Humanitarian Access and Security Analyst at U.S. Indo-Pacific Command Center for Excellence in Disaster Management and Humanitarian Assistance, where he leads engagement on Taiwan. Casey arrives at the Center for the Department of State's Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations, where he led global research on countering violent extremism and supported stabilization programming. Prior to stints in D.C. with U.S. State and USAID, he lived and worked in Afghanistan for eight years with the U.S. Institute of Peace and other local organizations, conducting research on the Taliban and advising the U.S. military on stabilization efforts. Casey is a graduate of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, the Indian Institute of Journalism and New Media, and Seattle University. His research in photography has appeared in the New York Times, National Geographic, and Foreign Policy. Casey, welcome to the show, and thank you very much for joining us today to talk about your international experience and your international career. Thank you, Kyle. It's great to be here. So as with everybody, we also always, always sort of start with the, the same question, which is always, you know, you've got this great diverse background, but how did you actually get started? What drew you to international careers overall? Yeah, um, and this is a question that I get as well from, from time to time, both in formal settings when uh, we're, you know, someone is, is interviewing me for a job and it's very open-ended um, and your ability to just sort of uh, riff and free associate and dig into your your past history is something that interviewers, I think, really appreciate. And so, in a sense, is also a bit of a skill to be able sort of to talk about yourself and your background and how it relates to a job, but also just in general uh, conversations and cocktail parties and family gatherings and, and things like that. I guess I would start off and say, uh, you know, I, I don't have what someone would envision to be sort of a traditional background or a traditional path. 
that led me to where I am. I am not uh, the son of uh, diplomats or the son of missionaries or one of these uh, uh, people that you do meet in the in in our profession who said, "Oh yeah, I was born in uh, in, in Zaire, you know, and uh, and I grew up uh, next door in Tanzania, and you know, dad was a missionary or dad was at the embassy or something like that." Um, and you do meet some of those people, and uh, those those people always are are great, and they always bring a lot uh, to the profession. But and I'm also, you know, amazed and sort of jealous about those people. I didn't. Um, I don't think I really left the United States uh, until I was about 20 years old. I grew up in Spokane, Washington, a great sort of uh, middle class upbringing to parents who were, you know, teachers and carpenters, and um, but not uh, a family that traveled abroad a lot or did anything or had really any. Uh, connections internationally. And the first time I really left the country was in my junior year of college to do a study abroad program in Florence. And this was, I think, one of those, uh, you're you're kind of very wonderful and eye-opening, but also sort of very sort of basic, go study art history for a year in Florence, um, live in a major city, be in college, you know, be running around with a group of college kids over there. And it wasn't really until the end of that trip when we went to Tanzania and Egypt, Turkey, and traveled around in some of those areas um, that I started to get a taste for what was out there and what was beyond the United States. And I think that was, as I look back on it um, now, you know, it was one of those sort of necessary but not sufficient steps for getting into the profession that you needed to get that exposure. Ultimately, what you were going to be doing in the areas that you were going to be focusing on and the types of work that you were going to be doing wasn't going to necessarily be, you know, art history in an Italian city, but it was that necessary step to get out there. And from that, and from uh, particularly from the experience of, you know, being able to travel in, in East Africa. When I went back to school, I actually stayed in school for an extra year, chose to, to go to a fifth year of, of college because they had just started a program um, at Seattle University where I was studying. That was a program that would, in your fall semester, teach you about international development and in the winter semester, place you in an internship with CARE, CRS, uh, Save the Children, these types of organizations. Um, and then in your final quarter of the year in the spring quarter, you would come back and do your write-up uh, on sort of your experience and, and what you learned and, and some of the, the key takeaways. So I, I ended up actually hanging on in college uh, and been essentially paying to go for another year of, of college just so I could do this program because I really, really wanted to do it. And that turned out to be um, sort of very valuable in the sense that I was able to go back to to Africa, to Tanzania, and I got some of that internship experience. I think that was initially what was for uh, Catholic Relief Services. And so it was working and living um, in a, a small town in the western part of Tanzania near Lake Victoria. And that turned out to be a great move because sort of it, it further gave me some understanding of the context, uh, not just of you know Tanzania or CRS, but of international development more broadly, and what were some of the skill sets that would be uh, useful, um, and what was I guess even more so what was the sort of the frame of mind and the lifestyle that you know one would need to have um, and adopt, um, and and was that something that was compatible with kind of you know, what I wanted to do, how I felt, you know, these kind of uh, aspects. So I got that experience, did an internship with CRS, you know, wrote some proposals, was seconded like we often get to a small little human rights organization that was working there and tried to develop um, some sort of niche 
in terms of what I could actually bring to a, a small human rights organization that was working in, in, in Tanzania and understanding, you know, a lot of what I could bring was uh, support to them in terms of doing the writing, doing the proposal writing, doing, you know, uh, uh, write-ups on things and, 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 and doing uh, photography and putting together different sort of uh, publications and media packages and things like that for them. Obviously, Vice being, you know, the person that's out front leading the charge for human rights in, 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 in this part of uh, Tanzania. And I think that was also very informative in terms of, okay, what actually is my role and what can I actually bring as a then 23-year-old, and I would say even today, to, you know, these organizations that are working indigenously in these contexts. And so I think that was a sort of, I would say, kind of the first sort of formal step. And if, you know, if you looked at my resume, the long form of my resume, that would kind of be the start, right? There would be a line at the very, very bottom and it would say, oh, Catholic Relief Services, you know, did such and such and the three or four bullet points on there. And that would kind of be, I think, the sort of the, the starting and marker point of it. And then I got out of, uh, I got out of college and like, you know, like a lot of you, I was heavily in debt. And I still wanted to get back and, and continue to work abroad. You know, Seattle U is a wonderful university, but it's also not, um, you know, an East Coast university. It wasn't like, um, you know, it was my undergrad at Georgetown or something where you're already plugged into an international framework. I mean, there is uh, some of that on the West Coast, especially, you know, at, at University of Washington, a little bit at Seattle U, if you're very interested in in Asia. And I wasn't really that, that interested in Asia at that time. Um, so in order to pay my debts, I went and I worked offshore on an oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico. And this allowed me to, uh, as a sort of a, a roustabout deckhand, you know, low man on the totem pole um, type of a thing, but just going out for months and, and staying on the, on the, the platform out in the Gulf of Mexico for months. And this allowed me to, number one, pay off my student debts, which was an important thing for me because that gave me freedom. And number two, to save up just enough money so I could um, self-finance a trip back to Tanzania. Because I knew that even at that young stage, and I think um, even with a, a bachelor's, that I was going to need to sort of have to generate something on my own versus you know, doing what is a very hard thing, which is to to be back stateside with almost no experience uh, and try to get a posting abroad, which is something that's very, very difficult to do. And it's one of those sort of uh, chicken and eggs things that a lot of people, you know, come up with. And so my solution, I don't know if it was the, the correct solution, you know, necessarily in hindsight, but was, you know, uh, <laughs> to get dirty, you know, both, uh, I guess, uh, physically and, 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 and spiritually uh, drilling oil, and then to use that money to fly back to Tanzania. And beforehand, I had uh, worked a few contacts um, and found, you know, a small, actually, arm of the Tanzanian government that just did small and medium enterprise work, and that they were looking for an intern to help them, uh, you know, go out and interview batik makers and weavers and metal workers around the country and put together um, um, some catalogs that would showcase their products to try to, you know, drive business to these small and medium enterprises. And that they were looking for an intern, but you know they had even uh, uh, less money than your, an unpaid internship, um, in the sense that they didn't even have the money to get you out there, or you know the money to put you up in any place. But it was a time when you're you know uh, 21 years, 22 years old, 23 years old that uh, you don't actually need very much to live on, right? And I and you don't have a lot of um, encumbrances. 
And I exploited that. And so I didn't need very much money and could live over there for a good chunk of time. Worked for them doing that work in Tanzania. And then uh, I went up over into Uganda and had gotten a job at a really great small soccer league that had been set up in Uganda called the Kampala Kids League. So just modeled on a sort of an American youth league or even you know, in some international countries, um, youth soccer leagues. And they were hiring folks to start that league up in the north, uh, in the northern Uganda. And this was 2004. So the war was still going on with the Lord's Resistance Army. It was some of the sort of the last years of that war. It was winding down. Uh, Joseph Kony's forces had been fairly well kind of um, hemmed into a small section of the jungle up there. It was a time when there was still a lot of fighting going on. And it was a time when there was tens of thousands of people in uh, internally displaced persons camps in the north. And so part of what our mission was, was to go get a, uh, to work with these kids, to work with the authorities up there to get uh, a soccer league off the ground that would reach not only the kids that were, you know, living in these towns, but also the kids that had been in these camps and that had kind of grown up in these camps, um, and, you know, had essentially no way to uh, socialize and were getting, you know, a level of humanitarian aid from the UN and uh, other NGOs at the time. But you know, we're missing out on a lot of this other stuff that you know would uh, uh, that you need to have sort of a balanced um, uh, life and, and good psychological development. And so that was kind of one of my, I think, very sort of formative uh, area, times because it was like, all right, you're going up by yourself. You need to start this field office. You need to get it off the ground. Here, here's the amount of money you have. You need to buy, you know, go buy a bike, go buy, you know, the you know off the local market, go buy the soccer equipment, and most importantly, you know, you're going to need to go around and determine who are the influential people within this community. And then you're going to need to talk to each of them individually. And then you're going to talk to each of them collectively in order to get their support um, to get this league off the ground, because we're not going to go in there and just open this up. Number one, it was great. And number two is very sort of eye-opening of, okay, this is actually how, you know, these things work in practice is you don't march in and, you know, start playing soccer and you take a bunch of pictures. It's, it's really doing sort of the ground game of, of working with uh, the community and being able to develop these relationships and being able to explain what you're there to do, explain your organization, you know, and really hone, you know, things like, you know, having a, an elevator pitch of, hey, this is what we're going to do, you know, and, and be able to sort of anticipate questions and come up with answers and then just do some of the very kind of uh, nuts and bolts aspects of the work, like opening up a opening up an office and you know hiring a small staff and dealing with the different needs and 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 personalities within you know a staff in in that way um, and trying to do it all in a humble manner. So that was that was eye opening. After that experience, I left I left Uganda because I got a scholarship from Rotary, one of their what's called an ambassadorial uh, scholarship. Um, which is something that I would highly recommend if you haven't looked into it already. Um, you don't necessarily need any connections with Rotary. I didn't have, uh, you know, I, I knew one Rotarian who was my Jesuit priest advisor at Seattle University, um, and that was as, as much as I needed. You didn't have to be a, a member. And that was a, a scholarship for one year to study uh, abroad. And after being in Uganda, I looked at the schools there and I realized I didn't want to study in the schools there. Um, and so I ended up deciding to go and study in, in, at a journalism school in India in Bangalore, Bangalore, India. And it was a one-year program. And I really liked the program because they had the Indian founder of this school had decided he was going to model his journalism program on Columbia's journalism program because he had gone to Columbia. 
So he basically ripped off Columbia's uh, curriculum and their way of teaching of, you know, very much hands-on of, no, you have to generate your own story ideas, and then you have to go out and report those story ideas, um, and then you're going to produce a paper and do all this kind of stuff. And it was very... Um, it was very much a, a sort of a, a boot camp experience. It was very eye-opening to be in, in, in to sort of put your finger on a map and end up in Bangalore, India, you know, which is, you know, like, like a lot of places in India, it's a city you haven't heard of much, you know, especially back in 2004 when I went there. Um, but that has, you know, millions of people in it. Um, and uh, to start working there and reporting there was great and very eye-opening. And I had chosen to go to journalism school, I think, in part because there's kind of been a tension on everything I've done in between sort of the aspect of, you know, doing the work, you know, doing, you know, sort of uh, international development work or doing peace building work or doing, you know, some some forms of, um, you know, humanitarian assistance. And then the aspect of reporting about something and writing about something and being in these places. And, and what was it going to be? Was it going to be while well, you would be trying to, um, you know, to, to work on uh, the conflict or the situation itself, or would you be trying to shed light on the conflict or understand it better or bring it to a wider audience? And I had kind of, after being in Northern Uganda and seeing what's going on there, and at that time, a very, very forgotten war. This was before, um, you know, all the social media campaigns around Kony, and this was before organizations like the State Department and, you know, different aspects of, of the U.S. government had gotten involved in trying to find Kony. This was at a very, very much time when this was out of public spotlight. And I think I had decided at the time, well, maybe I should, you know, give it a go for um, journalism more full-heartedly. And so I went there. First, I was in Sri Lanka uh, in 2004. I had gone there a week before the tsunami struck to try to get into northern Sri Lanka to interview the Tamil Tigers for a story that I was writing as a journalism student um, that I was hoping to pitch to a different couple different publications. Um, and so I was there when the tsunami hit in Sri Lanka, and I ended up uh, then uh, staying um, and uh, was uh, one of the first people on to sort of the east side of the island where some of the, you know, obviously the, the most devastation was. Um, and so, and then, and then started to actually report that back for a newspaper in the United States, actually back for a newspaper in my hometown of Spokane, Washington, who I had, you know, cold called and said, Hey, I am here right now. And they said, well, send us what you got and take pictures, you know? And so that's kind of where, where I was when, um, that happened. And that was both sort of you know, an eye-opening experience as a journalist and now working more in the humanitarian field, um, you know, of, of what actually those those uh, types of major disasters look like eight hours uh, after the point of impact um, in some of these areas and what are kind of, uh, what what the response uh, looks like in those, in those early hours and days and even weeks and what are some of the actual needs at those times, which is sort of very informative now in, in what I do. Um, and it was from that position that I went up, it was from that position in, in southern India and Bangalore that I went to Afghanistan in 2005. Um, I think it was originally, uh, this is a time when the security situation was still good and India had opened up its first flight into Kabul since 2001, since 9-11. Um, and I wanted to be on that flight and sort of uh, that that would be the peg to the story was, okay, we're resuming a commercial, more commercial ties and, and, and there may be some tourism. Um, and so I had uh, tried to get on that original flight and I couldn't get a visa and I missed it. But nonetheless, I ended up flying into Afghanistan in 2005 um, by myself and then 
just traveled using local buses around the country for about a month at that time when the security situation was still relatively good. And I didn't have any contacts from anyone, um, but I was able to to make it around and wrote stories uh, based on that um, experience. Again, stories from the perspective, not of conflict necessarily, but of, of the situation overall. And after that, I came back and then I did my sort of obligatory time in the more sort of uh, traditional and straight-laced aspect of, of uh, sort of my story was, you know, coming back to the United States um, and going to getting a graduate degree at Fletcher School at Tufts University um, for two years. This was a situation where had I gone directly from undergraduate and said, well, I went and worked for CRS and I think it's great and I want to continue this. And had I gone directly from that from that point to point B at, at Fletcher, I don't think I actually would have been accepted. And so I, you know, I, I, I and to its credit, I think it's a good school because of that, um, uh, that they want, you know, some sort of experience under your belt before they're going to sort of allow you in and, and something, some sort of, you know, raw material that you can work with in that environment and then look at, you know, what you've done in the last two or three years and go, all right, well, I wish I would have kind of known some of this stuff beforehand, but it's good now to have some theory around this um, and to to do the thing and then and then study sort of the theory and, and study some of the you know the, the good practice on it um, versus the other way around. Is that the right way? I don't know, but um, I do I do know that I probably wouldn't even even have been accepted if I had, if I had applied um, uh, first off. So I did two years there. Did a an internship in Africa, in back in in Kenya with the UNs with UNOCHA, um, their a news network that's now defunct, Irin. Uh, so did my time there and had gone up and was report was able to um, write news stories for them. Was 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 making coffee at, at headquarters for part of the summer and then had said, "Well, I'm going to go write some news story for for you guys." And had gone up into Somalia into Somaliland. Uh, rather, and, and wrote news stories for them up there. Um, but then when I finished up with Fletcher, I decided I really wanted to go back to Afghanistan. So the week before graduation, I, I did an interview, sent a resume cold through um, Relief Web to an organization that was an Afghan organization called the Liaison Office that was doing research uh, in 2008 at a time when the U.S. military presence and the U.S. diplomatic presence um, was uh, expanding. Uh, or was, I would say this, it wasn't expanding, but it was on the cusp of expansion. It was the start of the Obama administration, and there was a lot of questions about should we or shouldn't we expand? Seems like the insurgency is getting worse. What does this mean for us? Um, and this was a small Afghan organization, 20 Afghans and two or three expats um, on the staff um, that was doing a lot of the on-the-ground research in these areas where the Taliban was expanding, um, and it was doing it for usually sort of international actors that were trying to work in those areas. And that ranged from really almost purely development and humanitarian uh, organizations, the Swedish Committee, um, to you know NATO member states, uh, Poland and, 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 and Canada and these other areas that had um, troops on the ground. And so I went there and that was an interesting case of also coming out of grad school with, you know, $60,000 in debt, which probably to your younger listeners seems probably quaint. Um, but uh, to me at that time was like, oh my God. And there was the question of, I had mentally prepared myself or I had mentally said at the end of that time, you're never doing another internship. You've just done internships your whole life. You know, you've just got this big, uh, fancy grad degree you're never going to do another internship. And the first, uh, most interesting thing that came along from uh, this organization in Afghanistan 
Their offer was, I think, to pay for my plane ticket over, and that was it. Um, and their reasoning was sound because their reasoning was, you are going to have to uh, get up uh, in front of people in the U.S. government, and NATO, uh, and other humanitarians, and you're going to have to be the smartest one on, on, in the room about what's going on in these areas on the ground, because that's why they're coming to us to figure this out. And you won't be worth anything to us in that regard for at least six or seven or eight or nine months. And so you can come over and you can do an unpaid internship and you can get this experience and we will, you know, make sure that you get down to Kandahar and that you're able to ask the right people the right questions and put together your reports. Um, and, and doing that and making that decision and really kind of going, okay, I'm going to do another internship you know, and really um, exploiting the fact that I think your student loan debt doesn't kick in until, uh, you know, the f six months after you're, you're done. And I said, all right. And I even, to be honest, I'll probably, you know, n maybe Naviant will still come after me. But I think I even, uh, knowing that this was in my future, I think I maybe even took out a slightly larger student loan my last semester in order to be able to cover this first uh, four or five months as things would play out. Hindsight, I wish I had taken out an even bigger one, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and so I did that and, and doing that and working for that organization for two years was sort of the catalyst for everything that kind of came after and was sort of the new chapter in terms of um, doing research in conflict zones, doing kind of that type of work and, and, and getting into those questions of you know humanitarian access and security and terrorism and, and these kind of the whole nexus of those questions um so i worked there for um they eventually started paying me it was a great job um i worked there for about a year and a half um and then the surge happened um after the obama administration had undergone all the different reviews that it was going to uh <laughs> different reviews it was undertaking and people like us were going yeah you know the insurgency really is getting bad down here and you know there's probably a couple months left, you know, before Kanahar falls, unless you're going to, you know, get some reinforcements down here and, you know, X, Y, Z. So I went, I then went to work, USAID hired me um, after a, you know, after a 30 minute phone call in which I could uh, prove that I was in fact, you know, already sitting in Afghanistan um, and that I, uh, I did know something about Afghanistan um, and that I wasn't a complete uh, flake. They hired me, gave me a job offer the next day and, you know, did my security clearance in a month and then told me, we're, we're going to fly you out of Afghanistan back to D.C. so you can take training on Afghanistan, um, which was my first sort of, uh, you know, inauguration into the federal government and going, oh, OK, you know. Um, and at that stage, I was still sort of young and hungry enough that I was like, oh, I don't need to leave Afghanistan, I don't need, you know. What, you want to put me up at the DuPont Circle Hotel for a month while you teach me? Oh, no, I need to be back. You know, I was like, nah, I'm like, well, that was, you know, that's that's a pr pretty good little break. Um, so I ended up uh, working for aid. And when I when I went to work for aid, you know, I was very kind of open. I said, you know, I really don't know a lot about international um, development as much as I do about this conflict that's going on right now. And so they had enough people down there at the time. that They said, all right, what you're going to do is just you, you're going to be working for USA, but you're going to be a political advisor to the brigade um, commander that's moving into this uh, battle space in central Kandahar at that time. Um, and you're going to live on the FOB and you're going to be paired up with him. And that, that, so that's what I did for a year was I was his political advisor and worked a lot with the district governments um, and the provincial government, but mostly these couple district governments in these areas where they were doing these um, sort of the kind of 
at that time, which was sort of the main sort of thrust of some of the operations to push back the Taliban. Um, and so we were responsible for trying to get government officials back into those areas and trying to, you know, figure out what the what kind of the minimum was in terms of, you know, capacity and service delivery that the government would need to have in these areas to um, sort of begin to reestablish itself. And so I did that for, I, yeah, I did that for a hard year down there, which was a very difficult time, but it was very, you know, enlightening in the sense that um, it was my first real civ mill um, type work. And the commander down there, to his credit, that had, you know, uh, uh, 6,000 men and women under uh, his command there at a, at a time when he was losing a lot of uh, soldiers on a very regular basis, you know, accepted me uh, into his office and plopped me down right next to him and told anyone that came in, hey, this guy works on the same level as I do. And I was someone who, you know, had had no one under me, um, had no responsibility, didn't even, you know, wasn't even someone with a budget, but it was sort of um, his sort of modeling and saying, no, this guy's opinion matters. Um, and we work as a team. And this is the whole point of this is to have a, you know, civil integration. Um, and to be in one of those environments was great. And it gave me a good, um, you know, I think a lot of people can come away in, 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 and have very bad experiences from having to work in that kind of dynamic, um, especially when it's a very large military mission. And the, um, the civilian mission is, you know, almost by default in those in those large uh, military missions going to be you know uh, relatively small that was a good period but after doing a year down on that fob i decided i need to get back off and so i actually went to work back for my old organization the afghan organization continued to do research for them all over afghanistan and into pakistan and then eventually went to work for usip and worked on the elections in 2014 first time that uh, Ghani was elected, we worked a lot on sort of get out the vote campaigns. And then I started to work on this sort of what was being called countering violent extremism at the time. And went back and worked uh, for aid in DC for a year on a fellowship. Um, so it was a fellowship on countering violent extremism, and it was a very uh, good way to ease into life in uh, D.C. Um, I had never worked in D.C. before. I had no experience of what it was like, you know, close to the flagpole, as they say. And that was it was a good introduction there. And it was a very also, you know, non-traditional role at, at USAID. It wasn't, you know. I wasn't a USAID FSO person. I wasn't even a USAID you know, civil servant or anything. I was, you know, a fellow and then went over to uh, CSO, uh, the Bureau for Conflicts and Stabilization Operations, largely because I had been collaborating a lot with CSO on different product, products. Um, and they had said, hey, come over and work with us. And I said, sure, let's do it. So I went over um, and worked with them again on, on CVE and sort of expanded the role out a little bit um, and began at the end of the time in 2020 to look away from, you know, what we had uh, at that point been looking uh, primarily at, which was Islamist violent extremism, you know, ISIS, ISIS-K, those types of actors, to right-wing extremism. Again, because we were the State Department, our remit was not to look within the United States so much as it was to look outside the United States. And my job was to try to figure out more sort of the intellectual and ideological links between um, actors abroad, right-wing extremists abroad, and those actors at home. And that was the last thing I did. Um, was or That was the main sort of portfolio I was working on at, at um, CSO. Um, until a, a, an old friend of mine um, from Afghanistan, his organization 
uh, where I work now in the Center for Excellence in Disaster Management and Humanitarian Assistance. And based at uh, U.S. Indo-Pacific Command here in Hawaii, had posted something. Um, and, that, and that was the point where we were, I think, six months into COVID. Um, and I had packed up the family and moved um, from D.C. to northern Idaho to sort of um, uh, regroup in, uh, in, in our lake cabin, in my family lake cabin, and um, be near the water and the boat and be able to run around and kind of very much luxuries um, at, at that time in the pandemic or even still now in the pandemic. Um, so I was up there working remotely still for the state department and uh this friend of mine said well come come and work for us you know and so i made the the shift so that's kind of that's it that is that's the almost the full biography i wouldn't even call that a memoir maybe if i live another 30 years then that's the perspective at which that that chunk of my life could be considered a memoir but now i think it's probably still the the full biography so over over yeah. to you yeah well, that's a great story yeah thanks for sharing that. that that's um really a diverse amount of experience i want to sort of unpack a, a few points there that you sort of went through on these transitions so when we when you sort of first started and I, and you hit on something that I think is a uniquely American problem, right? When you just left university and you sort of recognized then that your student debt was something that you had to deal with. And so that's that's generally a, a uniquely US problem that we have and and I think but you hinted on the on the fact that that sort of that short time that you did to try and fix that problem working on the oil rigs and and things like that that you know, you weren't necessarily working in your career. You were sort of working on your on your career as far as progress and development. Didn't know what quite you wanted to do, but that gave you a certain amount of freedom. How important was that piece of freedom that you had, that kind of financial freedom to be able to then, you know, move forward and plan a bit more in terms of the rest of your career steps? Yeah, I mean, and there's been times in my life when I have probably right after I, I kind of did that, where I questioned what I was doing because I got out of college and I was broke. And then I, you know, I had such a fear of debt that I made it, uh, you know, a bunch of money as fast as I could, but do by doing nothing else and taking this very kind of, you know, odd job and then paid off all my debt and then use the remaining to pay off, pay for plane tickets. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm essentially, I made myself broke again. I didn't need to actually pay that off so aggressively. Um, I could have, you know, come away with, you know, a, a good, nice cushion, um, and you know, gotten a, an apartment and 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 had an ability to sort of move around and maneuver. Um, but yet, I I just, you know, immediately immediately was um, sort of poor again by by that choice. And I think that it was ultimately a, a, a I can see it now as sort of a strategic decision. At the time, it was more working on impulse of, I need to figure out a way to get back. I wasn't thinking, oh my God, this is how I'm going to undo this, this, this knot of, mm -hmm. you know, how do I get, you know, experience with, you know, I, I can say that in hindsight on a podcast like this, but at the time it was much more driven by those twin um, uh, ideas of, I don't want to be, I don't want to be in debt because I don't like to be, um, to have my options limited. And my number one option is to get back to to Africa. And so I need to make enough money to get back to Africa. 
the reality is that even after I had worked on the oil rig and paid off my debt, all my student loan debts for my undergrad for the first time around, and before I went back to Africa, I needed to get another job. And I got another job uh, working the, the 3 a.m. To, to 9 a.m. shift at a Costco in in like, you know, the Soto district of Seattle. And it was just the, you know, stocking laundry detergent on in on those, you know, big shelves in the morning. So I could just scrape up enough to, because to, I was kind of looking at my finances and going, well, I think I've got enough for four months, but I'd really like to have enough for six months, you know? So, well, okay, I'm going to, you know, take this job and we're going to work on this for, you know, you know, two and a half months. And then, you know, disingenuously, I'm, I'm literally going to skip out on these people and, and get on a plane and leave. Um, and so there was still a lot of, you know, continuing going, you know, yeah, going, you know what, I'm, that I'm, I'm, and I, and I, again, I'd like to say that it was a strategic move. And, and it's also probably, a, you know, a general fact that I, you know, I didn't have that much, um, uh, I guess I had, you know, enough humility um, to be like, well, I, I have no problems taking on jobs like this and, and doing these jobs. It actually doesn't bother me. I'm not someone that was like, oh, you know, oh my God, I got to hold my nose and take these jobs. I was kind of like, well, oh, you know, we'll, we'll do these jobs and these are, you know, um, I like these enough as they are in, in a certain strange way, but these are also a means for me to, um, to get over there. Um, so I think, yeah, so I think that, um, that ability to, you really need to exploit when you are young and are unencumbered and you can live on what you don't even realize at the time, but what you will realize in the future when you have kids and a house and a mortgage and everything, um, what are very, very small margins, um, in terms of, you know, how much you need, uh, to live on, um, and your sort of freedom to make some of these decisions as, as, you know, as basically a lone actor. And, and I realize you know, that not everyone is in that position, even when they're young, um, you know, or relatively young. Um, and so, and so that is kind of, you know, sort of one of the big sort of luxuries I think I had was, um, not that I had a bunch of, uh, um, money that I could finance all this stuff with in the early years or not that I had, you know, parents with connections to any of this, but that I had a generally sort of unencumbered period of my life when I could make decisions just for myself and, and sort of pursue those in sort of a very kind of uh, selfish manner, you know, that you, that I wouldn't be able to do now over. Well, I think there's to a certain degree, I think, so everybody's had the odd end job that they had to do, but I, I think one thing that at least in the number of interviews we've done yet this year, it's like, um, a lot of people were sort of driven by this greater ambition of being international. And like, you know, if you have to take a, a few jobs to be able to, you know, achieve some objectives to be able to enable you to have the freedom to go overseas, to go back, like in your case, you're driven by going back to Africa for at least six months, you know, um, then that's completely fine. And I, I think that's largely what's sort of missing in terms of like career planning for a lot of people is like, what do I need to do now to enable me to have this next major step you know so what are the the micro actions or that i can take or whatever you want to call it yeah. that allows me to take this one larger step towards a career i want to have and 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 most people sort of just refer to internships and things like that which you did but the next thing i wanted to ask about was like you made an, a very risky sort of number of steps there in terms of going to africa a few times you know volunteering to do things you know being in afghanistan or going to india I mean, that you have to be large, very sort of resilient 
very mm-hmm. confident, I think, be mm-hmm. and, and very comfortable in working in, in foreign cultures and different environments and like that. And also being very comfortable with a certain amount of risk that you're taking on mm-hmm. with that as well. Mm-hmm. How did that sort of come about for you? And I mean, you had the one internship over or you had the one study abroad. Sorry. You had the one study abroad, which exposed you to that. Do you think that that was a pivotal moment where you then saw that you wanted to be internationally? Or was it just something that you're always sort of been acclimated to be, I guess? You know, that's just where you're leaning anyway, regardless. Or was a study abroad program actually the thing that just sort of triggered it for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing I learned when when you initially go abroad and you do it, you know, in a manner that's not, you know, too much part of a package tour um, mm. and it's not too stage managed for you is that I think you learn fundamentally that when you when you travel and you go to new places um, that it ultimately is a lot of work that you know even if you're traveling in a group there's always you know one person has to be the one that goes up to you know uh, to buy the train tickets and hassle with the you know the uh, person at the uh, a counter about which actual train do you get on and which one shouldn't you get on and you know once this one stops how do I get to the next one and do a lot of the the actual work of interaction um, and trying to communicate with people um, to get you from from point A to point B sometimes you just want to turn off and go, God, can we just go there and be at this place wherever we're going? Um, you know, and those are usually the people that you don't like to, to travel with as much if you're doing all the work for them. Um, but the, the, the point there being that, that that is a sort of a necessary precursor, the ability to actually move independently in a relatively um, safe environment where you nonetheless have to negotiate a lot of different things, millions of micro negotiations on a daily basis. Um, you can't, you can't fall asleep. You have to know what's going on. You have to, you know, be aware mentally, physically, you know, in, in a lot of these um, situations and being able to do that in, you know, in you know, Western or Eastern Europe, you know, is a necessary precursor for, you know, being dropped in a fairly sort of random place um, where you ultimately need to have the same set of skills um, and the same um, ability to, you know, rely on the kindness of strangers and to be able to assess the sort of the intentions uh, of all the people that you're going to meet in all these environments and to be able to make decisions and go, okay, I, ge- I generally, you know, trust what's, what's going on in, in this situation um, and becoming into a lot of situations that look very um, risk averse from the outside, recount them at the time, they end up seeing, seeming a lot more mundane and a lot more um, uh, sort of problems of um, small logistics and overcoming those problems of small logistics, you know, one after the other um, until you've sort of completed whatever it is you wanted to do and you can look back and go. Um, and then within those periods, yeah, there's different periods where you go, okay, that's, you know, that was an interesting point. Um, but there was never necessarily a motive of, oh, I'm, I'm looking for a thrill um, or something like that. You know, it was much more being, you know, attracted to uh, places for uh, more basic reasons. I mean, my the first piece that I ever, you know, did in Afghanistan was a travel piece, you know, and it was because, you know, I really wanted to see some of these things that I'd read about, the Minaret of Jam and the, 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 the Buddha niches in Bamiyan and these kind of areas, and I was driven to go there versus, you know, oh my God, there's Taliban in, in these hills. I can make it through these hills, you know, without being detected as, you know, that was sort of never the, uh, the goal in that regard. So, 
Sure. And I, I think that makes sense. But what I've found with, with many people is it's not sort of the association with risk that people are wanting to work internationally. There's a, there's a draw to be immersed in other cultures, right? And there's a draw and appeal to being, like you said, in, in different environments, having to negotiate the, the fascination with other sort of, you know, living your life while you're also very sort of in your own world to certain speed, you know, you're immersed in this environment and you have to figure out your way ahead and then to be able to, and because I think a lot of times, especially if you were in Afghanistan and I spent a couple of years there as well, is like, it challenges your assumptions about the way you've, you know, you've been taught things and you think and it, you know, yeah, yeah. and I think people find that often very appealing. And, and so one of the questions that people always, uh, you know, many graduates and things like that always really are concerned about is how did you find the positions? You know, so you've made a number of really good transitions throughout your career. And uh, the sort of when we're, we're getting close to an hour, so I'll sort of leave this as our last question. And, and maybe, you know, if you're looking back on this, what would you recommend, you know, sort of recent graduates or young professionals now who are, you know, trying to get these things started as far as an international career? What would you say about these transitions? What was most beneficial for you? Were you getting on LinkedIn? Were you you know, doing other things, what were you doing that allowed you to sort of find these opportunities? Yeah, I think that, you know, the one piece of advice that I would have is don't look at it as an either or between, Hmm. um, you know, on one hand, networking and, you know, um, getting the the job through a referral or word of mouth or your friend or, you know, these kind of things, or on the other hand, you know, cold dropping, uh, resumes, you know, on the sort of web based application for something, clicking on apply and doing that. I have probably over the course of my lifetime, um, I'm probably about 50, 50 in terms of, um, stuff I've gotten through completely just cold throwing in my, um, I would actually even say I'm probably a little bit higher on that. I'm probably about 60, 40 in terms of cold um, uh, applying and throwing my resumes in piles versus uh, sort of the networking of, hey, you want to come work for us? We got a job, you know. Um, and even if you, even if it's, hey, you want to come work for us? We've got a job. You still have to, you know, have the resume and to be able to do the interviews. In in those cases, sometimes even more so because, you know, if it's a good organization, they want to make sure that you're, you know, fully vetted qualified and, and getting the job because of, um, I think that, so, so I think that's, that's one thing. So I, I would, I would encourage anyone that's looking to, to keep doing both and don't rely too much on one or the other. I think that, um, you know, in terms of getting jobs and retaining, um, jobs again, sort of one of the big sort of through lines is in all the jobs I've ever had, it's, it's the ability to write well. Um, and I think that that is kind of a, um, I think that at least that I've seen, you know, I, I see a lot, uh, there's kind of, you don't want to say there's two kind of people in the, in the world because there's not, but there's kind of, sometimes there's two kind of people in, in a lot of these jobs is the ones that can write well and the ones that can't. Um, and your ability to write well will take you very, um, far and it will take you into, um, jobs and positions, um, that you maybe not, aren't necessarily qualified for. And oftentimes that starts with the resume process and the, um, application process and the writing of a cover letter, um, and your ability to, um, for instance, you know, distill down the first 40 minutes of our conversation, um, here today into no more than a page at 
you know, uh, three paragraphs or two paragraphs and a couple bullet points um, and to um, make people want to know more about you and learn more about you um, rather than just a, a basic uh, recitation of, uh, you know, your accomplishments and those kind of things. Um, and I think that employers look for that stuff and they look for that stuff because they also want it to be able to translate into your, your job in, in terms of, um, um, especially in terms of how well you can write and, and oftentimes in our line of work, how, how fast you can write. You know, I always wish I could, I, I, yeah, I wish I could write better, but I always wish I could write faster, you know? So my ability to draft, um, because as much as everything is, you know, podcasts and us talking to each other right now, it's still in the work environment. You know, you're still sending a lot of emails and you're still putting stuff down into, into memoranda at, at the end of the day and your ability to, to do that, um, well, we'll go far. So that that's another sort of aspect in terms of like, you know, people looking for uh, folks looking for jobs and, and what they should be uh, focusing in and honing in on. And then, you know, I've bounced around a lot, right? So there's, and I don't think that that's necessarily, I think that's sort of more and in, sort of ingrained in who I am that I was going to kind of bounce around a lot versus, you know, which is another great path, which is, you know, um, to join an organization and spend your life at that organization. And I know a lot of people that I've worked with that have, you know, gone that path um, and they love that for their own reasons. And so I don't, I also don't think that there's a right and wrong path in terms of um, sticking it out with an organization or, or staying with an institution, you know, moving around within the UN system, for example, versus, you know, bouncing around uh, to a certain degree. Once I realized, I think at age, you know, 36 or 37, that, um, you know, that I wasn't going to work my way up to a, a minister counselor level in the state department or be an ambassador, um, anywhere in, in, the, in the state department by being, you know, a foreign service officer or anything like that. It was also sort of, I think in some ways, very freeing of, well, okay. Um, I'm, I'm not going to do that career path, but there's a lot of other stuff I could do. And it made me less, um, adverse to switching jobs when I had to, um, uh, switch jobs or when I, I felt that there was a need to sort of go forward in in another direction. So I also wouldn't, um, I also wouldn't uh, say that there's a, an either or choice there, but uh, to people that want to sort of switch jobs or move around, um, you know, I, I'd also sort of encourage that. And then doing that makes you better at, you know, ultimately at, at um, being able to market yourself, I think, you know, so over. Yeah. Well, thanks, Casey. Thank you so much for that. And as the sun is coming up behind you in Hawaii, the sun has really gone down and, yeah. uh, in yeah. Ukraine. So uh, I know you've got to get started with your day, but thank you so much for uh, joining us today and, and, and sharing your story. Uh, really uh, very interesting career path that you've had. So thanks for sharing that. If anybody is uh, wanting to reach out to you, what's the, way to, the best way to do that? LinkedIn or? Yeah. Yeah. LinkedIn's fine. Yeah. Just okay. There, so. All right. Great. All right. Thanks a lot. Appreciate your time. All right. Thanks, Kyle. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye-bye.